Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. Today is a fourth Sunday uh, every, or sorry, fifth Sunday. It's a fifth Sunday, which happens four times a year. And on fifth Sundays, we do Youth Takeover Sunday here at the church. And we are excited about the next generation here at Whitefields. We want to give these youth opportunities to grow in their giftings and to, you know, develop their talents so they can serve the Lord and be part, you know, active parts of the church. So I just want to encourage you, if you see youth serving in different areas around the church today, make sure to go out of your way to encourage them and show them some love because what they're doing is really cool and it's really important. This is also our first Sunday in our newly refurbished, expanded sanctuary. We had a great team of volunteers this week who came out. They were here, you know, just putting in a lot of hours. We had ladders all over this place. They're running cables and moving chairs and, um, you know, hanging the speakers and doing all kinds of other stuff. So we want to say thank you to those volunteers who came out and served. And additionally, our staff, you know, they really put in a lot of overtime this week, extra hours. And we also had the expertise of a man named Jeff Gefke. Jeff is uh, from Calvary Audio. He's based in California. And he came out here to help us get this all set up. And so we want to just say thank you to everyone who worked hard this week to make this happen. And, you know, we're not done with construction yet. We've still got a lot to do, including a lot to do still in this room here. But uh, this was a huge leap forward in the process. Uh, We don't have all the chairs out yet, and we're still trying to figure out what it might look like for service times and things like that. So stay tuned, and we'll, we'll keep you posted on any changes that take place in the near future. But again, the vision and the hope for all of this is to create more space So more people can come and grow and worshiping the Lord, studying his word and growing in the knowledge of him because we believe that God is building his church. He's drawing people to himself. And here at Whitefields, we want to be ready for that. Like we want to be ready so that people have a place to come and learn the Bible and and get to know the Lord and grow in him. And so that's what this is all about. So I want to encourage you guys, be praying for those who are going to fill these seats in the days and weeks and months to come. We're currently in a series called Strength in Weakness, which is our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're studying through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which is how we like to study books of the Bible here at Whitefields. So if you please open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, We'll be looking at the first six verses as we journey through the book of 2 Corinthians here on Sunday morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we want to come today with expectant hearts and receptive hearts, Lord. We know that whenever we open your word, you're faithful to speak to us, and your words are life-giving words. And so, Lord, this morning, help us to have attentive minds and receptive hearts. Help us to be responsive as we receive your word this morning in all the right ways. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when my wife and I moved back to the U.S. from Hungary a couple of years ago, uh, we were initially staying with family. And during that time when we had just moved back, we were staying with family and, you know, we were just trying to get set up here. Well, my wife, Rosemary, she got this really bad toothache. She got this really bad pain in her in one of her teeth. We weren't really sure what to do because we didn't have dental insurance. We didn't know where to go to find a dentist. So we went, we went online. We ended up finding this dentist near where we were staying with family who would work with us 
even though we didn't have insurance. And so we got it all set up with the appointment. I stayed home with the kids and Rosemary went out to the dentist on her own. And so the dentist, you know, he took care of her tooth and she came home and she told me, you know, the dentist, it was great. He was, he was super friendly. And then um, a week or so later, she had to go back to the dentist for like a follow-up appointment. And she said it was the same guy who took care of her, this guy named Dr. Brian. She went, everything was good with this checkup. It seemed like we were all done with the dentist. But then like a couple weeks later, we got this card in the mail. It's like a greeting card, like a handwritten greeting card addressed to Rosemary from Dr. Brian. I thought that was kind of weird. It's like a handwritten card which said how much he enjoyed meeting her. He hopes they can continue to see each other in the future. And I was like, all right, you know, maybe this is some kind of marketing strategy that their office uses for new clients or something. But it did strike me as a little weird that this guy's writing like handwritten notes to married women. So then that was a fine. I was like, okay, fine, cool, cards, yeah. But then after that, Dr. Brian starts texting Rosemary. And he's like texting her stuff that's not even like about her teeth. He's just like, how are you today? And I really enjoyed meeting you. I hope that we'll see each other again in the future. And at that point, I'm like, all right, Dr. Brian, how about you stop texting my wife and sending her cards in the mail? How's that sound? Because this is my wife. You want to get a wife? That's, that's cool. Good for you. Go do that. But this one's taken, and you can't have this one. This, you can go look somewhere else. Now, maybe you say, Nick, you, you kind of sound like a, a jealous husband. Well, maybe I do. Is there something wrong with that? Like, is that, okay? is that bad? Because listen, if this guy starts coming at my wife, any guy starts coming at my wife, what am I supposed to do? Should I just be okay with that? Should I just be like, I'll just step aside and watch and see what happens. Like, let's just see how this turns out, right? As a husband who loves my wife and cares about my family, I care about the integrity of my family. I didn't like it that Dr. Brian was a little bit too interested in my wife. In the end, Rosemary ended up texting him back and saying, hey, please don't contact me anymore. And that was the end of it thankfully. But you know what? There's an interesting phrase in the Bible where God says he describes himself as a jealous God. It's an interesting phrase. God is a jealous God. I remember talking with one of my friends a few years ago. We grew up together. He's not a Christian, but when we get together, he's very open to talking about God and Jesus in the Bible. And he knows that I'm a pastor. So we got to talking. And one time he told me this, he said, you know what I don't like about the Bible I don't like that in the Old Testament, it says that God is a jealous God. Like, I don't think that I could follow a God who describes himself as a jealous God because jealousy is not a good thing. And he said, if I was a jealous boyfriend, that would be considered a bad thing. Like, it wouldn't be okay for me to be a jealous boyfriend. And why would I want to follow a God who describes himself as a jealous God? Like, to be jealous is kind of a sign of weakness. It's a sign of insecurity. It means that you're kind of petty. And, and I don't want to follow a God like that. Well, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul the Apostle, writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. So what does that mean that Paul feels a divine jealousy for the Corinthians? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? That's what we're going to be looking about at in our text today in our study. So the title of today's message is Divine Jealousy. And here's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see that rather than being aloof about the fate of our souls, God is jealous for us, desiring that rather than being led astray, we would grow in the saving knowledge of him. 
So every week I give you a sentence. That sentence kind of summarizes the key message of the passage. And we also use it as our outline for working through these verses. So I'd love it if you'd write that down and take that in your notes as you go today and have that stirring in your mind as you consider these verses throughout the week. So again, one more time and then we'll break it down. Rather than being aloof about the fate of our souls, God is jealous for us, desiring that rather than being led astray, we would grow in the saving knowledge of him. So let's look at the first part of that. Rather than being aloof about the fate of our souls. Paul begins here in chapter 11, verse 1, by saying, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Now, in Corinth at this time, there was a power struggle going on between some members of the Corinthian church and the apostle Paul. Paul had started this church on his second missionary journey. He had gone there, preached the gospel, and as the church formed, he was their first pastor. And for years, Paul lived there in Corinth, and he taught them the scriptures and pastored this church. And eventually, when Paul left Corinth, he still stayed involved in the life of the church there in Corinth through a series of letters that he wrote, through correspondence, and also through a series of personal visits that he made to Corinth. But over time there developed a faction within the church in Corinth who resented Paul's ongoing involvement in the life of their church. There were people in this group who started saying things like, who does this Paul guy think he is, right? Just coming around here, telling us what to do, writing us letters, telling us what he thinks we're doing wrong. You know what Paul should do? Paul should mind his own business. What gives him the right or the authority to tell us that what we're doing is wrong or to just keep telling us what we need to change? Right? Who does this guy think he is? And these people not only began to challenge Paul's authority as an apostle, but they also began putting themselves forward, saying that they were actually more qualified than Paul was to give direction and leadership to the church. They asserted that they were actually better teachers than Paul was. And they said that God God had put his blessing upon them and that his blessing was not upon Paul. And as proof of that fact, right, that God's blessing was upon them and not upon Paul, they pointed out the fact that Paul's life was characterized by hardship, sickness, and misfortune, which if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that that is absolutely true. If Paul was on a boat, it's probably going to crash. If Paul meets a snake, it's probably going to bite him. If Paul meets a crowd of people, they're definitely going to beat him up. Whatever could go wrong, it seemed that it did go wrong when it came to the Apostle Paul. His life was characterized by these kinds of hardships and misfortune. And these people who didn't like Paul, who challenged his authority, they pointed this out and they said, look, there's the proof that God's blessing is not upon this man's life because if Paul really was a man of God, if he was a real apostle, then these kinds of things wouldn't happen to him. On the other hand, they said, Look at our lives. We've got it all together. Not to mention, Paul, I mean, look at him. He's funny looking. He's old. We're young and good looking. As a preacher, Paul is boring, but we are eloquent and dynamic. We're way more qualified to lead this church than he is. So forget Paul. Push him out. You guys should be looking to us for leadership and direction, they said. So here in this final section of this letter, Paul is addressing this power struggle that was going on in Corinth. 
And specifically, he's responding to some of the things that these people were saying against him who were vying for power in the Corinthian church. Now, in chapter 10, which we looked at the last two weeks, Paul addressed some of the underlying causes of this power struggle. He pointed out that what was at the root, what was motivating some of these people to question his authority and say these kinds of things against him was, on the one hand, spiritual warfare, and on the other hand, it was a desire that those people had for the approval of others. But now here in chapter 11, Paul is going to He's going to do something that he has until now been reluctant and hesitant to do, and that is that he is going to defend himself. He's going to defend his character. He's going to defend his calling as an apostle. In the first 15 verses of chapter 11, Paul is going to explain to the Corinthians why they should not follow these would-be leaders who wanted to push Paul out and take leadership of their church. And then from verses 16 to 33, Paul is going to give the Corinthians his credentials. Apparently, the Corinthians had asked Paul, Paul, these people are saying that you're not credentialed to be an apostle. How, what do you say to that? So they wanted Paul to prove that he was qualified to be an apostle. So Paul's going to give them some credentials. But as you'll see, they're not exactly the kind of credentials that the Corinthians are probably expecting or hoping for. And yet, even though Paul is now going to defend himself against the accusations that these people had been bringing against him, we get the impression from what he says here in verse 1, where he says, bear with me in a little foolishness. We get the impression that Paul feels embarrassed. He's embarrassed that he even has to do this at all. He feels awkward and weird about having to kind of toot his own horn in order to show that he really is qualified. And yet he's going to do it because he realizes it's important. And the reason it's important is because these people who had been speaking against him, they were actually leading people astray. And Paul couldn't just stand by and let that happen. Proverbs 26 verse 4, it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. I have this friend, you know, he, he puts it this way. He says, you know what? It's not always worth arguing every argument with every person because some people, you argue with them and you know what it's like? It's like wrestling with a pig. You both end up dirty, but the pig enjoys it. He says, that's what it's like arguing with some people. It's like wrestling with a pig. You both end up gross, but other guy enjoyed it, right? That's what it's like arguing with some people. It's not worth arguing every argument. Sometimes you shouldn't answer every foolish thing that anybody says because then you become like them in that way. But you know what the very next verse says there in Proverbs 26? It says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, those two Proverbs are actually saying the opposite thing, aren't they? The one saying, don't answer a fool according to his folly. The other one saying, you should definitely answer a fool according to his folly. Like, those are literally the opposite. So which one is it? Well, the answer is, it depends. It depends on the situation. The, the Proverbs give us principles, but when it comes to which of those principles to apply in any given situation, or how to apply them, that's where we need God's wisdom and the leading of the Holy Spirit to guide us. Is this a situation where it's best to just not argue and just hold your peace? Certainly there are situations like that. Or is this a situation where you should speak up lest other people be led astray in a way that could have serious consequences? You see, in this case, Paul is going to respond 
And he's going to defend himself, even though he feels uncomfortable and awkward about having to kind of toot his own horn. He's going to do it in this instance because he desperately does not want the Corinthians to follow after these people who, who were, want to be leaders, who want to lead this faction and want to have power and control and influence in the Corinthian church. And the reason Paul is willing to wrestle this pig, if you will, is because he cares about the souls of the Corinthians. He's not aloof when it comes to the fate of their souls. And that brings us to the next part of our sentence. See, rather than being aloof about the fate of our souls, God is jealous for us. God is jealous for us. Look at verse 2. Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. When Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, literally what he's saying is, I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God. Now that idea that God is jealous that can seem a bit strange, right? When you hear that, you say, well, it seems weird, right? God is jealous? Well, and, and it should seem strange to you because there are several places in the Bible where we are told that jealousy is a sin and something that we should not do. For example, in Romans chapter 13, verse 13, we're told that jealousy is an act of darkness, which is opposed to walking in the light, and we're told not to do it. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, jealousy is listed as one of the works of the flesh, and it says that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jealousy, it's on that list. And yet, what is this then? Like, clearly jealousy is a bad thing, but then in Exodus chapter 20, when God is giving the Ten Commandments there, what does God say? He's giving the Ten Commandments. He gives the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment. You shall make no graven images to worship them. And then he tells us why. Because I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. So what is that? Does, does God just play by different rules than we do? Right? Is it okay for him when he does it, but it's not okay for us when we do it? And if that's the case, then how can Paul say that he is jealous for the Corinthians with a divine jealousy? Well, the reason and the answer is this, that there are different kinds or different types of jealousy. Some of them are wrong and sinful, and some are appropriate and healthy. It really depends on the relationship. You see, it depends on the relationship, uh, whether that jealousy is appropriate or good or not. The, the kind of jealousy that is insecure and envious or covetous of what other people have, that is a bad kind of jealousy. But there's also a good and healthy kind of jealousy as well. It's the feeling, for example, that a husband has when he sees Dr. Brian texting his wife, right? Like, and sending her cards in the mail, right? It's a feeling that a wife has when she feels that someone is threatening the exclusive bond between her and her husband. You see, God isn't jealous of you. He's not jealous of anybody in the sense that he wants what they have. And he says, oh, I wish I had that person's life or something like that. No, he's not jealous of you or of anyone else. No, God is jealous for you. And that's very different. That has to do with your well-being, right? Your best interest. And so God's divine jealousy 
I'll tell you what, it's actually really good news because you know what it means? It means that God is not aloof. He is not unconcerned. He is not emotionally detached from the destiny of your soul. He doesn't say, eh, whatever, you know, do whatever you want. You want to do that? I don't care. You can do whatever you want. It's fine with me. It's cool. I don't care. He does not say that. No, God's jealousy means that he wants you. He is desirous of you. He wants you to be his. The fact that God is jealous for you means that God doesn't just tolerate you. Do you understand that? He doesn't just put up with you begrudgingly. That's what it means that he's jealous for you. It means that he is fiercely passionate in his love for you. He's desirous of you. And his jealous love is a love that will pursue you. He won't just give up on his relationship with you. You see, this kind of fierce passionate love that God has for you, it's described, for example, in the Song of Solomon, where it says this, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. That's the kind of love that God has for you. That's the kind of love that would move the God of the universe to leave his heavenly throne and become one of us, to walk our dusty streets and be despised by the very people he created and be nailed to a cross. That's the kind of love which caused Jesus to give his life in order to redeem you. You see, that's what it means that God loves you with a jealous love. It's very good news. In fact, it's at the heart of the gospel. This is why God then sends us who have been redeemed. He sends us out as ambassadors in the world to tell people about his love and grace, urging them, even pleading with them to receive it and be reconciled to God. And so here in verse two, Paul is saying, listen, I hate the fact that I, I have to defend myself to you, but I'm willing to do it because I'm jealous for you in the same way that God is jealous for you. I'm not willing to just step aside and allow these other people to lead you down a bad path. I care about the fate of your soul. And that's why he says at the end of verse 2, he says, because I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. It's a really interesting metaphor that Paul's using here. It's a metaphor of marriage, but more specifically, it's a metaphor of betrothal. You see, back at that time in the ancient world, marriage involved two separate ceremonies. There was a betrothal, which lasted for about a year. And then at the end of the betrothal period came the wedding ceremony. And at that time, the marriage was consummated, but it was considered a marriage legally from the time of the betrothal. Betroth See, in our culture, right, an engagement is not a legally binding agreement. It's not marriage yet. But in that culture, betrothal was actually the beginning of the marriage. It was then consummated at the end of the betrothal period. So for example, if you uh, were unfaithful to your betrothed during the betrothal period, that was considered adultery, and it was grounds for divorce. And if you wanted to break a betrothal, you actually had to get divorce papers, right? It was a legal proceeding. Which is why, for example, if you read in the Gospel of Matthew, right, you read about how Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And when he found out that she was pregnant during the betrothal period, he knew that it couldn't have been his. And so it says that he sought to divorce her quietly. 
And people are sometimes confused by that. Like, wait, I thought they weren't married yet. Why is he trying to divorce her? Well, it's because they were in this betrothal relationship. And that's why he did that. Well, in the New Testament, the relationship between Christ and the church is actually described as a betrothal. Let me, let me explain. The, the church in Christ, right? We, the church, are the bride of Christ. He is our groom. And what we look forward to is the consummation of this relationship when we arrive in heaven and experience the great wedding feast that awaits us. But right now, as Paul tells us here in verse 2 of chapter 11, we are betrothed to Jesus. And, and Paul paints this picture where he says, okay, the church, you guys there in Corinth, you are the bride of Christ. Christ obviously is the groom. What does that make Paul? It would put him in the position of being like the father of the bride, right? He, he's kind of helping the bride along. He wants to make sure that the bride gets to her wedding day having remained faithful, having not done anything that would jeopardize them getting to that wedding ceremony and that great celebration. Now, what would jeopardize that? Well, unfaithfulness would jeopardize that. And what would unfaithfulness to Jesus look like? That's what he describes now in verses 3 and 4. But before we read those, that brings us to the next part of our sentence. Rather than being aloof about the fate of our souls, God is jealous for us. The next part is desiring that rather than being led astray, rather than being led astray, that brings us to verses three and four where Paul says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. See, unfaithfulness to Jesus, Paul is saying, is turning away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And Paul is worried. He's worried that the Corinthians might be led astray by the errant teachings of the people who were vying for control there in the Corinthian church. Now, the reason why Paul doesn't want the Corinthian Christians to follow these people who, who are trying, kind of vying for power, the reason is not because Paul feels the need to be involved in every little thing or because he's somehow insecure and, and wants to remain in charge. No, the reason is because these people are actually preaching a different gospel. A message that is fundamentally different than the message of the gospel of God's grace that Paul brought to them when he came to them. The Jesus they were proclaiming was a different Jesus. You see, specifically, the message that these people in Corinth were propagating is a message that's sometimes called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. Now, when we use that phrase, prosperity gospel, what it refers to is this, this idea, this message that sometimes people proclaim, which is, if you follow Jesus, then God will bless you by making you successful and prosperous here and now. So if you follow Jesus, they say, then he will make all of your wildest dreams come true, and he'll prevent bad things from happening to you. Now, that sounds pretty good. Like, who doesn't want that? After all, there really is nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with being prosperous. There's nothing wrong with having your dreams come true. The only problem is that's not the hope and the message of the gospel. That's not the reason why Jesus came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death. The problem with the prosperity gospel 
it is not just that it promises things that it can't deliver on. The problem with the prosperity gospel is also that it has a shadow side to it. Because here's the thing. What if you do follow Jesus and your life doesn't get better, right? What if you follow Jesus, but you suffer sickness or, or loss? What if rather than your wildest dreams coming true, instead your worst nightmares become reality? Well, the prosperity gospel doesn't have a framework for understanding that or helping you through that. The prosperity gospel, all it can say is, well, if you're experiencing those kinds of things, well, then I guess maybe you're doing it wrong. Maybe you need more faith or maybe you're praying wrong or something, right? Like apparently God isn't blessing your life and the problem must be with you, it says. You know, the problem with the prosperity gospel is actually that it's no gospel at all. It's not why Jesus came. It's not what Jesus taught. It, you know what it is? It's a cheap knockoff of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever, you know, been to like one of these markets in another country where you can buy like cheap knockoff products or, you, you know, you can buy like knockoff products online. I love living in Hungary. There was a time I lived in this one city and we had one of these like knockoff markets near my house. And you could buy like Adidas with like four stripes on them, right? And like extra Ds, like Adidas, right? Like, they are like uh, I went to Mexico a few years ago. I got a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses for $10 and I think I overpaid. I think I probably could have got them for five. If I would have haggled my way down. But they were like Ray-Ban sunglasses, man. They look just like Ray-Bans. They even said Ray-Ban on the side. And they, they worked great for about two days until I wore them. And then they just like fell apart. I had some friends a few years ago in Hungary. They were buying these, the, you know, the like knockoff Chinese iPhones. And they were called Sky Phones. And they're like, bro, they look just like iPhones. They're awesome until you got them. And then you realize that they didn't actually work like as phones. They did look like iPhones though. And that's, uh, that's exactly how false gospels work as well. Right? They, they might look similar to the real thing. They might sound like even maybe even better, right? Like a great deal. All the stuff at a fraction of the cost. But in the end, they're just counterfeits. And they can't deliver on what they promise. And they don't hold up under testing. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul tells them a similar thing. The Galatians had also been, you know, fallen into believing in a, a false gospel. Here's what Paul wrote to the Galatians. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now listen, in Galatia, the false gospel that was being preached, that they were buying into, was a false gospel of legalism. The, the false gospel of legalism says that salvation and your right standing before God and God's blessings upon your life, they're based on your performance. You have to earn it. You have to deserve it. If you do the right things, God will accept you. If you don't, then you're on your own. You know, there are multiple false gospels out there. The Corinthians believe this prosperity one. The Galatians believe the legalism one. But there are multiple false gospels out there. And there are also lots of people who, who preach Jesus, but the Jesus they're preaching is different than the Jesus of the Bible, right? It's a different Jesus. So that brings up a good question. How do you know what's the difference between a true gospel and a counterfeit gospel? How do you know what's the difference between the true Jesus and a counterfeit or wrong Jesus? 
Well, you know what? It's actually pretty simple. There's a really simple guideline and a rule of thumb that you can follow. It all comes down to two big questions. Who is Jesus and how are you saved? Those are the questions you should always ask if you're, you're in question. Who is Jesus and how are you saved? That's what differentiates the true gospel from counterfeits. Or from, it's what differentiates Christianity from every other religious system and belief out there in the world. The Bible teaches, when it comes to the question of who is Jesus, the Bible teaches that Jesus is more than just a good moral teacher. The Bible teaches that Jesus was God come to us in order to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and he died a sacrificial death in our place in order to take the judgment for our sins. And the way we are saved, the Bible says, is not by earning merit points through good behavior, but salvation is a gift that God gives us by his grace. We receive it by faith, which means trusting in what he did for us rather than trusting in our ability to save ourselves. And the salvation he gives us is not the promise of an easy life here and now necessarily, but it's something better than that. Do you realize that? It's something better than that, something bigger than that. It's the promise of resurrection and eternal life in heaven. As Jesus said, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world but lose their own soul? The real gospel is the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The real gospel says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart because Jesus has overcome the world and through him, you can be more than a victor, more than a conqueror. And this Jesus, he absolutely does, by the way, have the power to bless your life, to make you successful, to heal you of illnesses. And he actually invites you to pray and ask for those things. But the hope that he gives you is something much bigger and something much better than just material wealth or physical health or worldly success. It's the promise of a better life that will last for eternity. And that hope, by the way, when you get that hope of eternal life through Jesus, you know what it does? It is able to sustain you through no matter what this life brings your way. Listen, if you are successful, this hope will keep you grounded and humble. And if you are not successful, this hope will give you courage and endurance. That's what the real gospel does. Don't accept any counterfeits. You know, counterfeit gospels are like counterfeit Ray-Bans. They fall apart when they're put to the test. So don't be led astray from the simplicity and the sincerity of the true gospel and the true Jesus. That brings us to our final point in our sentence today, which is this. Rather than being aloof about the fate of our souls, God is jealous for us, desiring that rather than being led astray, we would grow in the saving knowledge of him. Look what Paul says in verse 5. He says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. 
Now, in order to read this verse correctly, you need to hear the sarcasm in Paul's voice. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is perhaps the most sarcastic that he is in any of his letters. And it's, his sarcasm is very strong, right? Very biting sarcasm, especially as we go through here, chapter 11. And, and Paul's getting frustrated with these people and it's coming out in the sarcasm. You see, these people who wanted uh, control in the Corinthian church, who were trying to push Paul out, they were claiming that they were superior to Paul. And so Paul is saying, well, if they're superior to me and I'm an apostle, well, then I guess that, what does that make them? I guess that makes them super apostles. <laughs> oh, well, look at you guys. Oh, you, you're a super apostle. Well, good for you, right? He's mocking them is what he's doing. And he says in verse six, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Now, obviously, there were people who had criticized Paul's speaking abilities, and they claimed that they were more eloquent and dynamic speakers than Paul was. And Paul says, fine, you can be a more eloquent speaker. Go for it. Good job. You might be better speakers than me, but listen, when it comes to the knowledge about the scriptures, knowledge about Jesus, knowledge about the true gospel, I do know what I'm talking about, and you guys are way off base. And what Paul is saying here is that there is a knowledge about Jesus which really matters. These guys might have good style, but they don't have substance. This knowledge is more important than anything else. And what is this knowledge that Paul's referring to here? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter, Peter prays for his readers that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here, these people may have style, but what they lack is substance. What they lack is the knowledge of the true gospel, which can actually save your soul by bringing you into a saving relationship with Jesus. And this is why, Paul says, I don't want you to follow these guys, and I don't want them to lead your church. It isn't because I'm insecure or I feel the need to insert myself in everything. No, it's because they're leading you astray, and I don't want you to be led astray. What's at stake here is your very souls. You see, the message of the gospel, the good news is that God is not aloof about the fate of your soul. That's the good news of the gospel. God is not aloof and uncaring about the fate of your soul. He cares deeply, and he has acted in history in order to rescue you and make you his own. I like something that C.S. Lewis said. Check this out. He said this. We all want progress, right? We all want progress in our lives. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. The issue with the Corinthians is that they had strayed away from pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. What they needed to do was they needed to get back on track. And to get back on track, that, that involved turning back from the ways in which they had gotten off track and turning back to sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. Maybe there's some of you who are in that same boat yourselves today. Maybe you veered away from following Jesus and you need to get back on track. I want to encourage you to do that today. And for all of us here today, let me encourage you to fix your eyes upon the fierce, passionate love that God has for you and put your faith and trust in him who laid down his life for you. 
Because rather than being aloof about the fate of our souls, God is jealous for us, desiring that rather than being led astray, we would grow in the saving knowledge of him. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.